Let's launch into it. Uh, if you would join me, let's just pray for God to be in our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of you because you are a God who has spoke not only the stars into existence and the scripture onto pages, but you have spoke into our dead hearts, causing us to rise from the dead. And so God, we anticipate when our bodies will resurrect in the same ways that our hearts have resurrected. And so for my um, friends that have gathered here that have not experienced a touch from Jesus that has transformed them, I pray um, for the lost in here to be found. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who have experienced Jesus and that are walking with Him to learn His timing and His rhythm and His methods in order to maximally glorify Himself and to draw faith out of Him. And so God, would you instill faith by your Holy Spirit here that we might see your word and hear your word and treasure your word and walk in your word. And so God, we come completely dependent upon you. And uh, God, this is your church. And so come and pastor it, we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. amen. If you got a Bible, and I hope you do, open it to Mark chapter 5. Um, last week, uh, I completely, in my mapping out sermons, uh, didn't know that it was going to be Mother's Day. And so to celebrate Mother's Day, we did exactly what we do every week. Just preach straight through the Bible, which it ended up being about demon possession. And what better way to celebrate moms than talking about demons um, who can better wrangle demonic kids in church. See, I could have tied it, but I wasn't ready, all right? And so last week, we, we started chapter 5, first 20 verses of chapter 5, and uh, what happened was, previous to that, Jesus leaves the west side of the Sea of Galilee, gets his disciples into a boat, takes a nap, and puts them in a storm, and they go through literally hell and high water to get to the east side. And so Jesus is all about this. He, he's exposing them to things that are beyond themselves so that they can come to this question, who then is this dude? Who's this dude that speaks and the tempest like answers to him, like waves and wind, the natural created order answers to him, all right? And, and so he gets them through the storm, and I'm sure they're thinking, he's got us going through all of this for something that's just going to be special. And instead, they get off at what would be considered like a French nude beach, because the only thing that they find is not thousands of people in some multitude, but it's a naked Gentile. Like it's a demon-possessed guy and he's, you know, raggedy. He's got a legion, what, 6,000 at least uh, demons working on the inside of him. He's Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, can't chain him, can't bound him. He's ungovernable. And, and that's, that's what we went through that storm for is this one guy. God gets a hold of that guy's life and transforms him and unleashes him on the Decapolis, the 10-city region. Alright, so they, they finish that, and then here's what happens next in the story. Jesus leaves. Right? Like, they came all the way through that storm for one cat. Right? Doesn't that ex sound exactly like your Jesus? Who leaves the 99 to go after the one? Right? They go after, this is the inauguration of the Gentile mission. He's going to cross over and says, I'm going to get me a one that's going to reach City after city after city. And then he gets in the boat and he leaves. Goes back to uh, the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where our story picks up in, in, in chapter 21. Chapter 5 has been called by some theologians um, the St. Jude chapter of the Bible. And I know as good Roman Catholics that you're not, you don't know who St. Jude is. But St. Jude is the patron saint over lost causes. He's the pa patron saint of situations that are hopeless. And so what we see in the three individuals that Jesus engages here is they're in desperate situations. And so they've called this the St. Jude chapter of the Bible, which is weird, right? And if you know anything about St. Jude's hospital that works with kids, this is exactly why St. Jude's is named the way that it is. So let's get into the other two individuals that are actually tied to this first story in some interesting ways. Uh, verse 21. 
And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, this is the west side bank, this is the predominantly Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, um, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, or Jairus, however you want to pronounce it, by name, seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. And he went with her. And so first thing, a ruler of a synagogue. What is a ruler of the synagogue? We talked about synagogues uh, a few weeks ago. This is just an assembly place or gathering. Some met in homes. There was a, homes that were set up as a synagogue. Some were a uh, community. And it was the prototype of the church. The gathering, and you could literally argue the synagogue where they prayed, they worshipped, they studied scripture. And what the church became are literally the same thing. And they developed in the intertestamental period when the temple was destroyed and they were taken in exile to preserve the word of God and to preserve the teaching of the word of God. And so this cat is a ruler of the synagogue. It's fascinating to me because the ruler of the synagogue is not a rabbi. A rabbi did what I am doing. That is, teaching the Scriptures, handling doctrine, and preaching and teaching. The ruler of the synagogue uh, was an individual that was set in charge of the building, the grounds, the ministries, the operations. In modern churches, I know some of most of you don't come from Baptist churches, there's a lot of Bible churches, or even Baptist churches, or other denominational churches, that inside of the organizational structure today, they have an individual that they've, they've kind of created a few different names for. Um, some of them call them a lead pastor. Some of them call them an executive pastor. Some of them call them associate pastor. There's all kinds of names for it. But basically, it's a pastor that does not do the primary vision and teaching, but it's a ministry position and oftentimes a staff position that that person helps make sure that everything goes according to plan. Like, for instance, we're having um, a house church gathering tonight. A lead pastor, sometimes in churches today, will help handle to make sure the right people are in place so that the food is there and somebody's handling the baseball and somebody's doing this and doing that. Somebody also, we have oftentimes leaks inside the church, so something breaks inside the church. Well, who is the person that helps make sure that the deacons or whoever's there helps come and meet that need? This is what he did. He was kind of in charge of operations. It's very similar um, to what we see develop in some churches today, as the operations and ministries of the church get bigger, you, you almost need someone that's dedicated um, to helping manage those things. In our church, we don't have a position that does this. It's a group of elders. Uh, we kind of tackle this by committee, and then we have a great group of deacons that serve in various capacities. And so, but in churches today, just like in then, the ministries and the operations needed to be ran by somebody who was competent, right? who could put a paper trail on everything, who could cover all their bases and make sure the right people are in the right position. Are you tracking with me so far? This person would have had influence inside the church. This person would have known tons of people, not only inside the synagogue, but in the community. Let me put it to you like this. He probably had an upstanding reputation in the community. Jairus, as a name, comes from Jire, which is actually mentioned in Judges um, chapter 10, verse 3. And he comes and it says that when he saw Jesus, he ran... And he fell at his feet. Now, this is fascinating because there's three times in this chapter that people are going to fall at the feet. The demon-possessed man falls at the feet of Jesus. Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus. And the woman with the issue of blood falls at the feet of Jesus. Also fascinating is there's three people or individuals that are unclean or in unclean situations. The demon-possessed man lived among the tombs and being around graves would have made him ceremonially unclean in Leviticus. The woman with the issue of blood would have been ceremonially unclean. And the daughter that dies in this story, dead bodies, if you touch them, made you ceremonially unclean. And here we have somebody of reputation falling at the feet of Jesus. And I just say, uh, if you're going to get down on the ground, it's best to be wearing athletic clothes. And he's probably not. I mean, today, what would be the picture? Someone in a Wall Street, white-collar shirt and suit, getting in the dust, not caring about his clothes? What is the picture? I mean, let me ask you this. When's the last time you saw someone fall down on their face? Before man or before God? 
right? And I'm not talking like tripping. I mean, that's a different thing. Like, it's like my dad busted his face just the other day tripping over his own shoelace. It's not what I'm talking about. That's involuntary. We're talking about voluntarily putting themselves at the feet of somebody else. And I've asked this question to us as a church before because I know where we can get into this Baptist thing where when we worship, we don't move. Like the most holy people are the most stiff in the room. Right? But worship in the Scriptures is demonstrative. And oftentimes what's happening on the inside of us affects how we posture ourselves on the outside. Let me maybe say this about myself, and maybe you'll get here. One of the reasons why I don't bow before the Lord often when I pray or things is because I don't need Him like Jairus needs Him. Like I don't need, I, I think to myself, it's like I don't need you in humble desperation like He needs you. So I offer up some, some prayers, but my posture says maybe I don't, I don't, I'm not desperate. See, he's desperate and his posture follows desperation. You know why you don't beg and I don't beg before the feet of Jesus? We have reputations. You don't want to come and be seen by other people because you care what other people see instead of coming and bowing before the Lord. See, we got titles. We got images to uphold. Good golly, we did our hair. But Jairus is desperate. What makes him desperate? It says that his little girl is at the point of death. Fascinating. The word point of death, that, that in the text Greek, it's the word eschaton. The, if you know anything about theology, the study of the end times is called eschatology. The last things or the last times. He's saying, my daughter is at the eschaton. She's at the point of death. Matthew actually you, puts her basically at her deathbed. This is a story about a resurrection at the end of days. Her end of days, there's going to be a resurrection, which is the story of actually the whole Bible. At the end of time, there's going to be a resurrection. Isn't that unbelievable? So she's at the eschaton. She's at the end. My little daughter, like, can you come? Can you help her? Can you, can, can you, can you, um, can you come lay your hands on her? Can you pray for her? We're, we're in a desperate St. Jude kind of situation. Jesus, can you come? Now, uh, for some of us that are dads in here, I, I want to say this. Good dads still run to Jesus, fall on their face, and pray for their daughters. You want to be a good dad? Go to Jesus and intercede for your kids. Alright? But let's, let's, let's kind of soak this up just for a minute. Um, one thing that I, I studied uh, this week looking at this, um, I didn't know that teenagers, which she's almost a teenager, it'll say later in the text that she's 12, have some of incredible buying power. Teenagers in the United States, from the last statistics, have $91 billion of their own income. Does that seem high to you? I remember getting an allowance in quarters, all right? Total, parents and kids combined, they spend $208 billion on teenagers. That's 13 to 18-year-olds, $208 billion. It is four times more disproportionate to their actual income than adults. 14 times more disproportionately. Let me ask you a question. Of all teenagers, who in the United States has the most disproportionate buying power? Teenage girls. They affect, and by the way, I know this is uh, probably one of those female privilege things, 85% of buying power amongst adults is also females. All right? Just a little float, that little, that little nugget out there. All right? So they start young and they stay going. All right? Teenage girls, have, they have more effect upon what the parents buy from products to different things. They have their own money, right? I would never buy my son a car, but it kind of struck me today. It's like, I might buy my daughter one when she turns 16, right? There, there's some double standards we ain't trying to get rid of, all right? And so, uh, yeah, my kids, what? Um, most disproportionate buying power. And, and I get this, like when I first wanted kids, I wanted a boy. All right? Just be, I wanted someone to carry my name and have boys, and I, God blessed us with boys, and I love my male children, and, but there got to be a point, and I, I remember um, watching videos and seeing how, um, in particularly, females are disproportionately aborted, and they suffer things in disproportionate um, suffering, that God did a thing in my heart where at one point, I just, before the Lord, cried out, I said, I want to have a daughter. 
Like I want to have one of the two genders. I want to have both, right? Um, I want to have a daughter. And we were blessed with um, a couple girls. And I don't know about the dads in here. It just, uh, it changed me, right? Like you, you start to feel for where Jarius is at. Like it changes you. Um, you think about like, I, I don't know how to braid hair, but I know how to braid rope. It's close enough, right? You think about their first dress they wore or like your boys come up and just punch you. Your daughters come up and hold your hand. It's just different. And as a dad, I started to watch movies, right? Not Frozen. I've still not seen it. I'm out, okay? But you, but you watch certain movies that you would not watch unless your daughter is there with you. Or how about this? I still just emotionally... Uh, to see a child die before the parent messes me up in movies. Doesn't it you? Think about this for Jairus. She is at the point of death. The last few seconds he could spend with his daughter, he could be by her bedside, or he could run to Jesus. Could you imagine making this choice? I can either be next to her as she passes... Or I could throw a Hail Mary pass and go run to Jesus for some hope that He might come and lay hands on her. How many of you, if your daughter, come on dads, if your daughter is dying and you may get your last moments with her, or you could throw that Hail Mary pass and go maybe have somebody come and help her, what do you do? Do you feel the rock in a hard place that He's in between right here? I just say this. Having daughters and interacting with this text, it makes it hit differently. It just hits a little differently. My daughter is at the eschaton. She's at the point of death. Come and lay hands on her. I'm begging you earnestly. Like, Jesus, come. Please. I've leveraged my last moments with her for just a chance that she would come and do something. He's desperate. Now, I love this. Verse 24. And Jesus goes with him. Which is fascinating because you think about the faith of the centurion that is mentioned in the Gospels how he says, Jesus, just say the word and my, my servant will be healed. And Jesus says of that faith, it's like next level. The, the, the ruler of the synagogue can't conceive of Jesus being able to do something unless he's there to touch them. Which gets into our next story, right? Like, um, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So you got a mass around Jesus. So this is a bus in India that has 200 more people than it's made to hold. Right? This is Woodstock for some of you people that were there. Right? Just a crowd of people. Am I sweating or are you sweating on me? You're just like around people. I know we're Westerners, so we have this personal space thing. we got a halo, and if somebody gets into that halo, it makes us uncomfortable. Right? Jesus just got, got no, no safe space. Right? They're thronging around him and people just wanting to get at him. Now think about this for a moment. I just want to pause. In a story about how everybody wants to get at the Son of God, you have a story in chapter 5 of three individuals. This whole crowd wants Jesus and he's walking with one guy. The whole crowd wants him and he crosses the sea for one Gentile. The whole crowd wants to touch him, but one person touches him in, in a way that is transformative. Okay, so this is a miracle inside of a miracle. Like we have two accounts, and, and it, it's kind of problematic because Jesus just got in the ambulance and should be hurrying to what he should be doing for Jairus' daughter, right? And instead, he's held up by this other story, this other account. And if you could feel Jairus being like, Jesus, we got to hurry, right? Like there's a shot clock on this thing. This, like, we don't got time for all these people stopping us. You see Jerry says a dad just stiff-arming people, right? Like, get out the way. We got somewhere to be. And a great crowd fallen thronged about him. And there was a woman who had an issue or a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, we don't know what this is. It's probably a uterine discharge. But Mark, like many other men, was wise enough to not even think about looking into women's issues or... Asking any more questions than what's in the text, okay? Um, I'd say this, even if it's not a uterine issue of a discharge of blood, discharging 12 years of blood from any part of your body, even if it's your elbow, is not great, okay? Um, who had suffered much under many physicians. You are truly ill, 
if your doctors are the ones that make you worse and not better. Amen? Anybody seen those like commercials online and now the government makes them have, like list all of the negative like consequences if you take this? It's like you will not have allergies, but you may die of diarrhea, right? It's like, I'm not sure. I think I'd rather just sneeze and be accused of COVID drain out by diarrhea. I don't, like if you hear the, the consequence, and this is basically what's happened. She spent all of her money for the cure, and it's been worse in some ways than the disease. And so um, spent all she had, suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. Let me say something about all three of these accounts. I said last week that the demonic oppressing us and causing suffering in our lives is the judgment of God on our sin that serves the demonic. Our bodies are fallen because of what the first Adam did in sin and disobedience, such that they suffer physical brokenness and they die. Each one of these accounts says something about the fall, and each one of them says something about the Creator which has come to redeem us from the fall. The second Adam who came in obedience to save that which is lost. She was no better but rather grew worse. Rather grew worse. Verse 27. And she heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind Him in the crowd and touched His garment. Matthew's account will say the edge of His garment. And that's curious. I've taught this passage before. I'll rehash it a little bit here. But if you want to have a fuller treatment of what's going on here, I think you can get that teaching online. For she said, If I touch even His garments... Based on these reports that she had heard. How she hear reports? Somebody is sharing Jesus, Jesus like it's gossip over the back fence. There's reports getting out because somebody's sharing. I will be made well. I'll be made well. Now, something fascinating about this touch before we get into anything else in verse 29 is in the Old Testament, there is this... this, this um, prophecy there's these realities that are probably informing her action in numbers chapter 15 god commands the children of israel to make tassels on the edge of their garment these tassels in hebrew are called tzitzit the edge of the garment which is like the side of it is called your kanaf so if you've ever seen a jewish person and you might have recently in the news um, they have these tassels that hang from the edge of their garment these tassels, these tzitzit, have five knots in them for the five books of Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In between each of the five books is four spaces for the four letters or consonants of the unpronounceable name of God. yah vav Right? The threads that make this shirt in tassels, they use 613 threads for what they say is the 613 commands in the Torah. The 613 commands of God, the way of God. So you've got 613 threads in this garment with tassels on it with five knots, four spaces on the edge, the kanaf of the garment. This is Numbers chapter 15. What develops in the minor prophets, and we taught through this in the book of Malachi, in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, it's a prophecy about the Messiah that he's the son of righteousness that would rise with healing in his kanaf. Now the word kanaf means edge of garment, but it also means wings. In Hebrew, there's just like English, we get a lot of mileage out of words. Some words mean multiple things. And so this prophecy was that this Messiah that would come would have healing in his wings or the edge of his garments, the same word. So they would connect that to Numbers 15 and say, this Messiah would have in the edge of his tzitzit or the edge of his garment, like healing power. When we get into this story, does she have these scriptures in her heart saying this is the Messiah, the one with healing in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, healing in his kanaf, healing in his wings. When she reaches out, I, I, I don't think it's just an accidental touch based on just any reports. I think she's with very serious biblical faith saying this is the one. He's not like any other physician. He's the great physician. And it says that immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body 
that she was healed of her disease. This is the reality of every believer that when we reach out in faith and grab a hold of Jesus, we know there's something internally that is changed. And Jesus, perceiving in Himself that power, look at that, power had gone out from Him, immediately turned in the crowd and said, who touched my, look at the Bible, garments. Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to Him, this is, I mean, you got to give them some grace sometimes. You know what I mean? Like, who touched you? Everybody touched you for the last quarter mile. Like, who didn't touch you? Right? Are we, what do you mean, who touched you? The disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in, look at your Bible, fear and trembling, and fell down just like Jairus. How much is even in the last few chapters we've looked at faith over fear? Faith in the place of fear. Right? You fear in the storm? Have you so little faith? The townspeople come to Him and were terrified asking Jesus to leave because they have no faith in who He is. Now we see her coming in fear and trembling and fell down. And I love this next part because this is, this is what everybody that gets a touch from Jesus does. She told the whole truth. Some of us, we make witnessing for Christ and advancing the kingdom so complicated when in truth it's just telling the truth on God. What's the Lord done in your life? What has He changed in you? Just tell the whole truth on God. And He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. The word for well here in Greek is sozo. It literally is the word we use for saved. You could read it this way. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. It's the word for saved. Your faith saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This word for peace is not like hippie peace like back in the 60s. This is shalom. This is completeness or wholeness that comes when your relationship with God is restored into harmony. And that affects not just your soul, it affects your body, it affects the rest of your existence. Jesus looks at her and says, your faith has saved you. I don't, I don't know how to put this, but this has been the most profound thing from this chapter of me studying all week. Faith, listen to me church, if you get nothing else from this, faith is how the power goes out from God to you in Christ Jesus. Faith is how you receive the power of God that has gone out in Christ Jesus. For without faith, Hebrews says, it's impossible to, ple- to please God. Whoever would come after Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek after Him. Doesn't it look exactly like that? Why does Jesus draw her out of the crowd? She is a living picture of what faith connected to Jesus does. And He does not want her hiding that reality in the midst of a mob. And let me tell you this, Christian, this is the same thing He does when He draws you to quit hiding. Quit trying to cover up that you're a Christian among your family, among your friends, among your co-workers, at the places you recreate. Why? Because they need to see what faith has done to connect you to your Creator. How He has rewarded that with making you well, by putting peace over your life that they don't have. He refuses to let her hide in the crowd because then the whole witness of this picture of what faith connected to God does, it would be lost. And he refuses to let that happen. So as scary as it is, he says, who touched me? And he knows who it is. And he's going to draw her out of the crowd as scared as she is, trembling as she is, falling on her face as she might be. And she's going, cut, she's going to come before Him and He's going to do nothing. She might be scared to death. It's like, oh my, I hijacked Jesus for some power. Right? Who, who knows what she thinks is going to happen here? Right? Maybe she's going to, Jesus is going to read her medical history. Some of us in here wouldn't have that either. Right? Think about this too. Jairus comes openly. She comes clandestined. 
but she still comes. And Jesus, far from rebuking her, far from anything else, matter of fact, elevates her, encourages her, speaks things over her. I love is there's so much discussion in the evangelical world right now about the role of women and the scriptures. Jesus, we, we come to the part in the text where two women are exalted. You know, Jesus calls them daughter or speaks to them like daughter. Because every woman by faith that trusts in Jesus is a daughter of the king. And Jesus has a higher view of women than any culture in the world. That's why, you, mean, you, mean, you know why? Because he died to save women. I don't know what higher price he could put on his daughters. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Faith, church, I, faith is how you receive the power of God that's gone out in Christ Jesus to you. There is no pleasing God without faith. And, but let's be, let's be real here. Re- read this next story because I want to say something about where he's at. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, right, because we should have been in the ambulance Jesus pulls it over and deals with this situation. While he's still speaking, there came uh, from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter's dead. It's over. Why trouble, why bother the teacher any further? Verse 36. I love this about Jesus. But overhearing what what they said, so he's ear hustling, right? Just kind of like listening on the conversation of the table next to him. Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. There's that same exact theme from Mark right there. Do not fear, only... This conversation was not for Jesus, and Jesus is going to butt in and be like, yeah, that we, we, that's not what we're doing here. Right? I love that. Jesus overhears what's happening. He's like, yeah, about that. Don't fear, only believe. Put yourself in, in, in Jerry's situation. Now, what are we doing here, Jesus. Like, one, am I putting you out? Because that's what they're saying I'm doing. I'm putting you out. You've got thousands of people here you could be dealing with otherwise. What are you going to do for me? Like, you can't help me now in his reasoning. It's too late for me. It's over. Jesus looks at him and says, do not fear, only believe. Let me say this about faith. Faith is not for when only times are good, I trust in the Lord. Faith is when there's a thousand reasons to doubt. Peace is not for good times only. It's for wartime. Like all of us want to have faith, but do we understand that faith is for the worst of times? Homeboy just saw the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years. Not Could you imagine being that woman who could have given up the pain she has, the social isolation, how unclean she is, how weird that made her, all the things that she'd been through, how much money she had thrown on doctors. Could you imagine how easy it was for the woman with the issues, right, to give up? Like, and to quit? And to be frustrated? Like, earlier this week, I had a knot in my back, right, like that happened in my back, and it was just super bad. Y'all ever get those things like where your muscles like just decide you're just going to like do a thing? And I promise you, I was irritable for like three days, right? Trying to work that out. Have you ever gotten the man flu, right? Which they say is as bad as pregnancy, right? And you're just miserable, right? It's worse. These ladies will never know. I mean, put a little suffering, just put a little... Like, you ever had something wrong with one of your feet? Like you had like a toe that's bad or like something that in every step you took, you were just irritable. And like you could just, and you can, have you ever been irritable because of something that happened in your body and you just pass that irritation on to the people that are around you? Right? Like you could be short with people, right? You're like, what's wrong with you? Nothing, right? If we're doing that and how easy it is for us to get out of whack for a three-day problem, How easy would it have been the woman with the issue of blood to give up after 12 years? 
Now Jairus is watching this, and Jesus, as though he needed a teaching example, says, don't give up, look at her. We haven't even finished walking for an hour yet. And you're ready to quit. Don't give up in the first hour. Do you hear what I'm saying? Some of us are ready to give up on our marriage. Right? We're ready to give up on our church. Right? We're ready to give up on a kid that's wayward. Don't fear. Believe. Jesus invites you to replace your soul-sucking fear with a faith in Him that is against all odds. And the only thing He's given you is His Word and a plethora of witnesses around you to encourage you, don't quit. Do you hear me? Don't fear, only believe. And he allowed no one, so he goes to the guy's house and he said he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, um, the brother of James. And we say this all the time, Jesus had an inner circle. We, we know that he had 120 disciples, like 70 disciples, 12, even amongst the 12 he had a shady one, right? Amongst the 12 he had three, Peter, James, and John, and amongst the 12, even amongst the three he had John, the beloved that's at the cross, and he commits um, the care of his mother to on the cross, and I've said this before, Jesus goes deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer people. He's got a large circle, but he's also got a very intimate circle, and he's only allowing three in. And it says that um, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion um, and people weeping and wailing loudly. Okay, so for some of us, we don't understand what's going on here. In the ancient world, in Mediterranean um, times and places here, it was common if you had someone die, um, you had kind of the service funeral thing at your house, and you would have people, you would actually hire people to come over and to weep and wail over the person that's deceased. Right? Even the rabbis had a thing in their culture, this is not biblical, but it was cultural for them, where even a peasant of the poorest of the poor had to hire two flute players and one crier. So if you're like even poor, you've still got to get two, like it's kind of like your funeral cost. You've got to get two flute players and one crier to honor the dead and their passing. People that had more income, I guess they got like a, a full band. I don't know exactly here. They got more pieces to the puzzle put in. A few more criers. Few more. Ruler of the synagogue, likely, he probably has a ton of people weeping and wailing and musicians playing music. Um... Now, for some of us in here, you're thinking, there was professional people that went to funerals and cried? You missed your calling, right? Some of our more emotional people in here, I can cry at a drop of a hat. I could have made big bucks back in biblical times. Some of you other people, you're like emotionally dead, and you're like, I can't believe they would hire people to cry. It's you stone-hearted people that they had to get professionals for. Because you'd show up at a funeral you should cry at. <clears throat> I digress, okay? Jesus comes in... To this commotion, what, what kind of music is... I don't know what kind of music you play as a worship team. It's like, all right, let's play that Sarah McLaughlin song they play for the puppies in graduations, all right? It's like really sad music coming in. Um, I, I, for me, I think it's, it's got to be some sort of metal music because they're probably screaming and wailing. Um, so I don't know if they're playing like, what is this, Black Sabbath or you know Metallica for this funeral? Um, I don't know if you've chosen your songs yet, but I hope you have. Um, they come there, and Jesus is like, turn off all the heavy metal and all the death music. We're, we're done with that. Like, we're, we're Do you guys remember back in like the, is it like the 80s and 90s where they tried to say, like, in the Bible what the satanic music was? It's so funny because if you look back at it, in the 80s and 90s, it was all rock and roll was of the devil. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand. It's good. Thank you. I see those hands. It's, we definitively know now it is rap music, but <clears throat> theologically speaking, I'm just joking. Um, it's all godly. Um, so, so he turns the music off. Could you imagine, and I'm, I'll feel this for a second, going into a funeral, like we have a funeral in here and there's a casket here and they're playing music from the deal and Jesus is like, ah, turn that stuff off. It would be weird, Right? 
And, and he kicks everybody out. And he says, when he entered, he said, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. If there is anybody in their culture that knew death, it's these people that do a funeral like every other day. These professional whalers would have known. And Jesus comes in and says, turn off all that she's sleeping. Which is curious, like why does he call it sleeping? It's common in the scriptures to use this word uh, to parallel death. But some theologians would say Jesus is ridiculing death here. By saying, he's ridiculing death because he's saying it's as easy for me to raise someone from the dead as it is to raise someone from sleeping. The response is, the people that know best about death ridicule Jesus. He's ridiculing death. They're ridiculing Him. I said this is already curious about this chapter, that we think that if Jesus came to our town, everybody would want to like, follow Him and serve Him. But earlier in this chapter with the demoniac last week, we said they kicked Him out of town. They asked Him to leave. We think that if Jesus came with His profound teaching and His power, people would just sit and respond. And many did. Listen, many did. But there's also people that laughed right at His face. Think about this. The God of the universe had beings that He created look at Him and laugh. If He's of such exalted status to have dirtbags like us laugh at His face, isn't it weird that you don't want nobody to laugh at you at work because you're a Christian? And you're of much lower status than the Creator. He ridicules death the way that they ridicule Him. Either A, he doesn't know the severity of the situation that she is truly dead, or B, he thinks he has a power to change something that he truly can't change. The fact of the matter is they're both wrong. He knows the severity of sin and death more than anybody in this room, including myself. He knows also what he is able to do over death better than anyone in this room. How he can conquer it with a word. Do not fear, only believe. Child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those that were with him, and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said, Talitha Kuma, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. By the way, we remember this is written to Gentiles. This is Aramaic. Um, Gentiles would likely not have known Aramaic. And so, again, John Mark is making the message understandable to his audience by explaining an Aramaic term that Jesus used here. Talitha Kumai, which says, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. Again, these are details that would not have happened in mythology. This is a detail that only happens with eyewitness account. Peter, being likely the one that dictated to John Mark this account, would have known what Jesus said and that he took her hand and what happened directly afterwards because Peter was one of the three that was there. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. That's curious because the last guy over on the ten cities, he said, go tell everybody how much the Lord has done for you. Now he comes to this situation and he says, make sure that no one knows this. And then he told her to give her something to eat. Which is fascinating because after Jesus is going to rise from the dead, what is Jesus going to do? Eat. At the resurrection, at the end of days, how is the end times described? What do we do with God in heaven? What's the first thing? We feast. Right? Listen, breaking bread and feasting well together, whether it's hot dogs down at Joe Stevenson or breaking bread at your house or one day in heaven, is this ancient Christian tradition. The other thing too is I think we know that someone feels better whenever they start eating, right? If they're sick for like a week and they don't eat and then all of a sudden their hunger comes back. Um, what's terrible about coronavirus as someone that's had it is you lose your taste and smell I had no problem eating tasteless or smellless food, all right? I gained 10 pounds. It's like, can't taste this, but I bet it's good. Um, God gives a grace to us that when we're sick, we eat a little less, some of us, all right? But we know you start to get better because she did not raise from the dead as a ghost 
or an angel. She rose from the dead as a bodily person. It's the same thing. What's going to happen at the end of days? We're going to have bodies like Jesus. We're still going to enjoy food and earth and creation. He raises her from the dead in a way that one day we will rise from the dead at the word of Jesus, where the dead in Christ shall rise to the right hand of our Lord. Now look at this. He says, they were immediately overcome with amazement and he strictly charged no one to say this. Why would he do that? Now I'm going to give you my, here's my take and you can take this for what it is of why Jesus says, tell no one. Could you imagine that as word gets out and he raises some from the dead, we know the Lazarus account as well, that as his reputation as someone that can raise someone from the dead happens, what would their response be? Right? And is it his purpose? For instance, if I knew that Jesus could raise someone from the dead and he was like three blocks over, isn't someone going, I'm going to go dig up my grandma. Like my favorite people, go dig them up. And it's like, Jesus is going to raise them from the dead. Right? Aren't we like kicking open the hospital doors and just getting gurneys and like taking people to Jesus? There would be an endless, it would look like the zombie apocalypse of dead bodies being taken to Jesus so he could raise them from the dead. And then here's what's going to happen. Even if he raised each of them up from the dead, they're still going to die. Lazarus died again. This girl died again. She is not in the Middle East right now. Right? He temporarily raised her from the dead as a witness to something about faith. Something about what he's doing at the eschaton. Something about what it's going to mean for you. If, if it becomes a zombie apocalypse looking event, it becomes more of a distraction than a witness. See, he's not trying to raise you from the dead for 20 more years. He's trying to raise you from the dead forever. Eternally with him. That is going to happen through the gospel. That's going to happen through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus who died on the cross for your sin, putting a version of you in your sin to death and raising you to the newness of life. This is the picture of baptism, right? That's why we're talking about baptism and doing those this summer. Every time uh, someone by faith trusts Jesus and enters those waters, it preaches to us about death and resurrection and new life. Amen? Jesus is not... What good would it be to raise you from the dead? You live 30 more years of your life and perish eternally. Jesus is much more concerned with eternal resurrection. And that is why the message that he's preaching is more important than the miracles he's performing. The miracles are helpful. They're signposts. They're good. They have their place. But they are subservient to the message. Here's the message that I want you to hear. And I don't care if you're online or if you're here. The message is, it's not too late for you. Isn't that what we hear all the time? We've thought that for ourselves. We've thought that for our life, our message. It's too late for me. Jairus comes to Jesus. It just didn't work. It's, it's too late for me. But God is coming and saying, by faith, it's never too late. If you are sucking air on this planet right now, God still has ink in His pen to write your story. There's chapters left. Use them. Use them. By faith, do something with your faith that brings resurrection everywhere else. Here's the reality. And I I get this because the parable of sower we just taught in chapter 4, and here we are. Do you realize that a ton of people touched Jesus and it did absolutely nothing for them? A ton of people. A ton of people reached out and thought something about him or just wanted whatever. And the way this woman with issues reaches... Woman with issues. um, the, The way this woman reaches out is different. You hear me? A lot of people are going to come to church and it's, and, and it's merely coming to church just like it's merely touching a garment but without faith it means nothing. Some people are going to come and meet Christian. Christians are going to serve them, love them. They're going to hear the witness and it's, going to, it's literally going to do nothing. Right? 
and to say, oh, I tried that Jesus thing, the same way that a bunch of people tried to reach out, but they didn't reach out in faith. Faith is how we receive the power of God in what has been given to us in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you this, and we're going to finish here. Two questions. Do you think it's too late for you? Or are you like the woman with the issue of blood, diving like it's the fourth quarter across the end zone, trying to grab a hold of Jesus for one touch? Do you think it's too late for you such that you don't go and finish the walk with Jesus? Or do you reach out in faith and saying, I believe all that the scripture says in Malachi 4.2, Numbers 15, that this guy is. What Mark chapter 5 is saying, I believe what the scriptures are saying about this guy. And with all the faith in me, he is my hope and I am desperate and I'm on my face. To, I, I got to get him. I got to get him. I'll push people away in the crowd in order to make sure that I get to him. Because for a quarter mile, a whole bunch of people touched him. But they're not going to touch him in the kind of faith that I've got to reach out and touch him because I'm desperate and I need him. Let me pray for you. If you bow your head, more importantly, bow your hearts right now. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, you've never received the power of God for salvation, I'd encourage you right now to call upon the name of the Lord in faith and allow God in His power to come and change your heart. If you're a Christian here, and you would say to me, you don't remember the last touch of your heart from the Lord? You, didn't, you don't remember the last time in faith you connected to your Creator and there was that great exchange. Believer, I encourage you right now to reach out to the Lord in faith. If you don't know the last time you had a touch from the Lord, why not now? Why not now? My brothers and sisters, it's not too late. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would hallow your name and that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for the mighty outstretched arm of Jesus who reached out to humanity who is lost to the demonic, to broken bodies, and to death. And God, you've taken the sting of death away. You've invited us not to fear, but only to have faith. God, would you come and um, give us the faith to believe. Give us the courage to reach out. Give us the hope to keep going. God, give us the grace that saves there's one here, God, that doesn't know you, God, would you haunt them? Would you bother them? Would you move them? Would you bring witness around them? Undeniable witness in your word, undeniable witness of other believers and things in their circumstances that would cause them to fall on their face before Christ and find all that they need. God, would you come to my brothers and sisters here that are just dry, that are just in the crowd? God, would you draw them out of the mob by filling them full of faith that can't be stopped? God, I love your word. I love these people doing their lives. God, what you will. Pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Would you stand and respond in worship?